We're beginning a whole new series of uh, messages. And last week I've titled a message, Called by God, to signify the fact that uh, our very first step in our relation with the Lord Jesus Christ is to respond to the call of God. The Lord calls us, He equips us, He sustains us, ultimately for the purpose of the specific commission that He has in store for us, whether it be as individuals, we respond to that call, or as a corporate body, here and there, we must respond to the call of God and be well prepared for the commission of God. Today, I want to talk about something that helps us to really center and be focused upon the most essential thing in Christian faith. The most essential thing in Christian faith is not a thing. It's actually a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. When we talk about Christianity and the essence of Christianity, we're talking about the person. We're not talking about some organization. We're not talking about some doctrines. We're not even talking about some rituals, no matter how religious they may seem. We're talking about the person. God sent the person of His Son, Lord Jesus Christ. And the Son, the very essence of the Son, can be understood in terms of the message of the cross. Of course, Jesus did more than just die on the cross. He came, He was incarnated, He lived His life, He taught, He ministered, and then He died and He rose. But the cross is a way of integrating everything. You might even say his incarnation was the way of the cross as well. Because God was willing to become a human being, condescend to our level. And that's the way of the cross. His entire life was that of the cross. Okay? So today I'm going to talk about the theme of the cross. I've titled the message, The Way of the Cross. And the text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 31. And I will take this passage and break them down and systematically address the various issues that are present here. Let's begin with the context. What is the context that is given or presented by Apostle Paul as he wants to emphasize that of the way of the cross? From verses 10 to 13, let us read this text together. I appear to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And we see right away that one of the major problems with the Corinthian church is that there is a division within the body. There are factions within the body. And uh, this is a, a major concern for Apostle Paul because one of the premier theology of Apostle Paul is that of the body of Christ. 
that we as the members in the community of Christ, we are like the members of a body. We are organic and we are organic entity, a corporate body. And so a body cannot be broken into pieces. You cannot dichotomize the body. The body has to be whole. The whole thing about the body is that it is whole. It is one. And so Paul addresses this issue in practically all the epistles and primarily in the context of the Corinthian church. Now what causes factional division in a corporate body? Where sociologists would say cultural differences would definitely cause faction or division. Sometimes it has to do with the economic differences, class differences. That would cause faction to happen. Generational differences, gender differences, and perhaps ideological differences more than anything. They have a tendency of breaking apart a community. So in any social setting, in any real, actual setting that we know of, there are always groups, and we call them groupies, when they become a little too much engrossed into their own organizations, or cliques. And these groupless or cluster groups, they gather together because there's some kind of commonality which will draw them together. And what they do, each of these groups, they tend to accentuate certain distinctions. We are different from others because of this and that and so forth. And those distinctions become preferences and they are oftentimes aligned to certain allegiances. And this is exactly what we see in the church in Corinth. There are a number of allegiances. Some say they are aligning to Paul. Others to Apollos, others to Cephas, who is Peter. And some even adamantly say, we are aligned to Jesus Christ and Christ only. Now, who are these groups? And I'm going to try to define for you very simply. I think most of the scholars pretty much agree that the way Paul accentuates these figures, including himself, it is very clear that the church in Corinth or any other churches in those days would pretty much understand. Followers of Paul, who are these? What did Paul emphasize more than anything? How did Paul himself distinguish himself from other apostles? Well, I think these definitely are those Gentile believers who embrace the message of salvation by grace apart from law. And so they were probably saying, yeah, Paul is our hero because he's saying that we don't have anything to do with the Jewish laws anymore. We have our own religion now. It's the Gentile religion. And these are the people who probably gravitated towards Paul and lifted up Paul as a hero. Now, what about the followers of Apollos? Who is Apollos? We hear about him in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, to chapter 19, verse 7. He's from Alexandria, and Alexandria was a center of intellectualism in those days. He is addressed as a person with great intellect, fine sense of rhetoric, 
and he knew how to expound the scripture in those days. That would be equivalent to our Old Testament. He had precision about Jesus, even though he did not understand beyond the baptism of John. It took Priscilla and Aquila to come and uphold him and to basically disciple him into the next step. He was accustomed to powerful confrontation with the Jews. Uh, he knew how to passionately and boldly preach the word of God. Basically, he had sort of charisma. It was his personality which drew so many people. And perhaps they were comparing Paul to Apollos. That Paul lacked some of these features, which Apollos definitely had. Now, who are the followers of Cephas? Now, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, as we know. And just by the usage of this Aramaic name, we know that Peter represents those Jewish adherents, perhaps tending more towards the Judaizing or the Jewish elements like circumcision, like the food laws, certain legalistic tendency may have been associated with someone like Cephas or James even, James the brother of Jesus. Then there are those who call themselves followers of Christ. Now, shouldn't that be a comprehensive term to include everybody? But obviously, this is a sectarian group who are saying, we believe in Christ, our allegiance is to Christ and to no other man. We don't respect any other authority. It must be just Christ. And so they operate with a sense of spirit elitism, some kind of spiritual pride. Maybe there was a Gnostic tendency because in those days there was this Gnostic notion that it is some kind of knowledge, a special knowledge that we attain. And maybe they were saying that we know Christ, and once we know Christ, who cares about Paul, who cares about Apollos or Cephas or any of the apostles? It's Christ. We have a handle on this. And they become more and more independent-spirited, and they become more divisive in the whole context of the body of Christ. Well then, what is the unifying factor in such a divisive community like this? Well, this is what Paul is going to address. And let me give you the summary statement, the concluding statement. That is, the only factor that can unite any sense of division or factions in the body of Christ is the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's taken for granted. But that gospel is sort of embedded in the message of the cross. Now, we hear about the followers of Christ. They obviously embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But did they embrace the cross that Christ represented? Perhaps not. More likely not. You cannot embrace Christ and not embrace the cross. Because the essence of Christ is embedded or it is inherent in the cross. And so we're going to focus upon the message of the cross today. First thing I want to say is, based upon the text, is that there's power inherent in the message of the cross. Did you know that? In the message of the cross itself, there's power. 
the message of the cross may appear to others as some advocacy of weakness. Because who gets crucified? Usually those who are defeated. Those who have lost to the victors. They end up being victimized by hanging on the cross. And it is a miserable way of dying. And so it cannot be associated with power. You're powerless hanging on the cross. And it is not your doing. It is somebody else who has hung you on the cross and nailed you to the cross. So how can we say there's power inherent in the message of the cross? But this is exactly what Paul is saying. Let us read verses 14 to 17. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Here, of course, Paul is not undermining the importance of baptism. Baptism signifies conversion and regeneration. If you have been converted, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you and I, we ought to be baptized. That's the proper thing to do. Actually, Jesus mandated that. Baptize people of all different backgrounds in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is not what Paul is saying. But he's saying that I am not so much interested in me being the agent of baptizing others. Others can do that. I've done some myself, but that's not the essence of it. The essence of baptism has to do with the gospel. And it is a gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ centered on the cross. That's why in verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach. If I preach and they become converted, then the next step obviously will be baptism. So whether I baptize them or someone else baptizes, like Apollos, for example, it doesn't really matter. Because if they don't have the essence, baptism means nothing. All our rituals, all our religious acts, mean nothing unless it is grounded in the true gospel, the essence of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on saying, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He's preaching the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence. So obviously, Apostle Paul is saying the power doesn't come because you're eloquent. Power doesn't come because you have certain inside understanding in terms of wisdom and knowledge. It has nothing to do with your style. It has nothing to do with your methodology. It has to do with the content. It has to do with the essence. It has to do with the raw message of the cross. And I totally believe this. I, I've seen preachers, when they preach the cross, and they're faithful to the content of the cross, 
no matter their style, no matter their lack of eloquence or sophistication, is very powerful. But then I've heard of speakers with great eloquence, great wisdom, and but deep down inside, I don't feel like they really understand the cross. They don't understand the content of the cross. It's everything seems kind of fabricated. There's no power in that. It's spiritually bankrupt. There's no weight or substance in their message because it's not centered on the cross. They don't understand the cross. But if we truly understand the cross and we deliver that gospel of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's power. We must believe that there's power. I preach homiletics or preaching at the seminary and uh, I emphasize being eloquent, I emphasize being grammatically correct and having logical flow of thoughts and, and even working on your style or presentation. I emphasize all that. But at the end of the day, if the preacher doesn't really understand the gospel of the cross, doesn't grasp it, they're powerless. Everything just becomes fluff. Everything just becomes bubble. There's no substance. There's no essence. So remember, the most important thing in our presentation of the gospel is really understanding the essence of Christ that is found in the cross. If you understand that, then it's like having a, a nuclear bomb or you know, heavy material, plutonium or uranium in your disposal you have a potentially a bomb that is about to blow. Okay? So it has nothing to do with the packaging. It has nothing to do with the style. It doesn't have anything to do with the casing. It has with the essence. And that's what Paul wanted to get across to us. Second thing I want to say based upon this text is that wisdom is also inherent in the message of the cross. Paul is not only emphasizing power, he is also emphasizing wisdom. There's tremendous wisdom in the message of the cross. But this is not the way the Jews and the Greeks understood the cross. And so let us read verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Amen. I wish I had all the time in the world to expound this text in depth, but I don't. But I don't think it's necessary in this setting. 
for me to do so because you clearly understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross may sound foolish to people who do not know Christ. But it is an amazing revelation of truth for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ and who are saved. Verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Of course, it's foolishness to unbelievers. Because they don't understand it. They don't understand the significance of it, so they are not drawn to it. They're not grasping it. Therefore, they will find no salvation. But for us believers, it is powerful because the message of the cross, as we understand it, we embrace it, we are saved by it, and we are sanctified by it. And this is what Apostle Paul is saying. That it may be something like foolishness to others who do not understand, but it is like the greatest wisdom and power for those of us who believe. In verse 22, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So, what is the Jewish tendency here? The Jewish tendency in general, the scholars would say, is that they're looking for something very practical and experiential. They're not like the Greeks who are always looking for some philosophical basis or some intellectual basis. No, they want to experience the power of God. You have to understand the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, they were founded from the encounter with God as they escaped Egypt. And God performed all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles in their lives. So they had to witness God's power. God had to provide food for them in the wilderness. God had to protect them from the Amalekites and the enemy nations. God did all that. So what they're looking for is signs. And that's what they asked of the Messiah when they encountered Jesus. Show us the sign. Show us the sign. Because they wanted it to be experiential. They wanted it to be practical and applicational. What they were looking for in terms of Greek terms is dunamis. That's where we get the word dynamite. It has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. Power of the divine. That's what they wanted to experience. Now the Greeks, on the other hand, were very speculative in nature. They wanted knowledge. Gnosis. They thought if they had knowledge and understanding, they can find their way through the labyrinth. And then they can tap into the essence of things. They needed knowledge. But in verse 23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. We as Christians, we focus on the personal Christ and the redemptive sacrifice on the cross. But that itself is a stumbling block for the Jews. Why? For them, they cannot understand how a dying and suffering Messiah could possibly save them. It's not practical. He's weak. He's helpless. He's defeated. He's dead. 
But then they have a hard time believing the message of the apostles saying, he has risen from the dead. It takes tremendous amount to believe that a dead man could possibly rise. And besides, being hung on the cross was cursed to them. How could this be something that would be practically beneficial to the Jewish community? They could not understand it. That's why it became a stumbling block for the Jews. For the Gentiles, it was foolishness because they could not understand how the divine one can come in the bodily form, in the flesh, and bleeding, and dying. That could represent divinity. You know, the Gentiles were always looking for something divine and something very speculative out there. They could not understand that. It was too fleshly. It was too gory. They wanted something so much more sophisticated. They wanted something so much more ethereal. And the message of the cross sounded so crude. But Paul says in verse 24, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power and wisdom of God. Why? Because Jesus' death on the cross has a way of redeeming us. Jesus sacrificing himself on our behalf, him substituting on our behalf, is going to cause redemption for us. And through his death on the cross, he is defeating the power of sin, the power of death, and of course the power of Satan. This, Paul says, is wisdom, which cannot be appreciated by those who cannot believe. Those whose eyes are not open, those whose hearts are not enlightened, there's no way they can appreciate the cross as the wisdom of God. But I can appreciate it because I came to the Lord in 1982, uh, March of 1982. I know that specific day, specific event when I came to the Lord. I have been seeking God in my own terms before men. I grew up all my life in a Christian family. But when I was into arts in the New York City, that was when I felt like I had a lot of liberty not to go to church anymore. So I didn't go to church as often as I did. Occasionally I'd go, I'd show respect. Sometimes I'd visit a Roman Catholic cathedral and you know, just show respect to God but I didn't have any relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I was searching for my own salvation. And as an artist, I was searching for it as a, as a philosopher would do. So I, I was into all kinds of philosophies of life. And as a philosopher, I was looking for a way, and I thought, hmm, this is a very sophisticated way of thinking. Yes, I, I think I can be enlightened. Yes, I think that may be the truth. I had all these speculations. I had all these notions of how it can be God. But the thing about philosophers is this. They operate on the premise of liberty and freedom to choose and pick and think however they want to think. They don't want to be told how to think. That's the way of the philosophers. But when I came to that point of crisis, when I humbled myself before the world, and I began to realize that there was only one prescription for me, and that is through Jesus Christ, 
his death on the cross that I must embrace that. No more would I rely upon my own freedom to choose, but simply to receive the grace that God has given unto me through Christ dying on the cross. I came to that terms and I came to realize that's what relationship with God is about. Doing it in His term, not my term. Not me deciding what are my choices in this matter. But asking the Lord, what is the way of salvation that you have provided for us? And God clearly showed me from the word. It is through my son, Jesus Christ. It's through the cross. Accepted. That is the only way. Because every other way is the way of death and destruction. So for the first time in my life, I decided to humble myself to the prescription of God as given in the word of God. And I realized once I embraced it, I began to see, I began to open my eyes and understand all kinds of wisdom that is only found through my allegiance to Jesus Christ and the message of the cross. Yeah, so today, when I and you, we see the people of the world, they think this is foolish nonsense. You see people demeaning Christian messages, demeaning our Christ, demeaning the cross. But there's wisdom in that. And it takes faith to believe that there's wisdom in the cross that leads to salvation. There's power in the cross that has the potential to transform our lives. Well, that leads me to uh, the third point, And that is, facing the cross, there is a demand upon us. There is a challenge granted unto us that we be humble enough to embrace what God has in store for us through the cross. In other words, humility is demanded by the cross. When we encounter the cross, we must be broken of all our pride and self-sufficiency, all our insistence upon this way or that way, all our fabrication of so-called truth. And we must humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. Verses 26 to 31. Let's read this out loud together. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What God has called the Corinthians, and many of them were perhaps from the slave population. This is a fact that the people of lower class and even the, of the slave population, they were drawn to the message of the gospel. Just like in Jesus' days. It was the people who were often considered non-privileged. Those people at the fringe. Those who are marginalized. Those who are outcasts of the society. Those people who felt like they had no place in the society. 
they were the ones who gravitated toward Jesus. As a matter of fact, those people who are of the aristocratic, the elite of the society, they had the greatest problem with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus once said that it's very difficult for a wealthy person or a privileged person or someone who thinks he has so much, whether it be knowledge, money, status, fame, they got too much to surrender all that. And that's why it's very difficult for such a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of heaven like a camel entering through the eye of a needle. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. And he's reminding the Corinthian church that most of you are from humble backgrounds. I'm sure they were those who are from the elite, those who are of aristocratic status, those who are of the intellectuals, those who have all these prestiges. But basically, the people, the common people were of humble background. They were not wise by human standards. Maybe in today's standards, they didn't have the college degree or something like that. They were not influential. They didn't have the status. Maybe they're just working people. Perhaps more than white-collar workers, they're blue-collar workers, working in the factories, working in the shops, trying to make their ends meet. They were not of noble birth. They got no inheritance to claim. They got no backing of their parents to fund them, to elevate them. They had nothing. And maybe that's why they can go to Christ. Because Christ may finally establish some kind of sense of esteem for them and elevate them in their social status. So what God is saying to these people through Paul is that it was his divine choice to select the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, the despised things, and the things that are not for his divine purpose of actually shaming and nullifying those who are superior so that no one may boast at the end of the day. And we know throughout the Bible that God is in the business of humbling the proud, raising up the weak, siding with the underdogs, always looking for those who are in need of God. Do you need me? Then I am your God. You don't need me. You are God. You have made an idol of yourself. Do you need me? And we must cry out to the Lord, I need you. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the money. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have all these people crowding around me to support me. I'm all alone. And I'm helpless as a babe. Those are the people that God's attention seems to be focused on. So before the Lord's sight, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if any of us, we think that we are first, we are up there, we have to be careful. Lord is in the business of stripping that kind of mentality off of us 
And if we think we're standing, be careful that we are not going to fall. If we elevated ourselves at a high status, just be careful. The Lord can topple that down. That's why it's always wise as Christians to stay humble. Because God is in the business of getting rid of all forms of pride. Why? So that only one, only one can be exalted. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, I love this text. I'm sure you're familiar with this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's thoughts, God's ways, the way God operates, His philosophy of life is completely opposite of how we do it as human beings. And we think making it and rising to the top and holding that fortress, that's what the name of the game is. But according to Paul, who really understood the mind of God, that's completely the opposite. As a matter of fact, those people who are up there, and he's talking about even Christians. He's talking about 21st century Christians like us. If we think we're up there, be careful. Because that can lead to your pride. That can lead to your self-sufficiency. And God may topple that down. And we have experienced that. I have experienced it in my own family of being toppled down. Because we became too arrogant, too sufficient, too comfortable. Thinking that somehow, you know, we got it all right and that's why we are privileged. The Lord's saying, be careful. Be careful where you started from the bottom up. Stay humble. That's the safest place to be. Why? Because lower you are, even if you do fall, you will not get hurt as much. You build a high tower and you do fall, you're going to be crushed. You're going to be shattered. And so I'm reminded constantly of, based upon texts like this, where am I? Have I become too self-sufficient? Have I become too arrogant? Uh, do I think that I'm up here? And perhaps as a theologian who's constantly involved in theologizing about you know, God's ways, theologizing based upon proper doctrines and so forth, it is easy for someone like me to become arrogant, intellectually speaking. I have the degree. I've written thesis. I, I got a doctorate. It's very easy for me to be arrogant. For those who have money, it is so easy for them to get arrogant because you know, they think that money will provide for all their needs. We got plenty of money piled up in our bank account. We, we've invested it and, and you know, our stock is rising and everything's going great. Yes, it is so dangerous for those who are wealthy thinking that they have it all. And then there are people who are very privileged. They've never been poor. They've never suffered. And so they have all the privilege. They're living in the comfort zone. They have to be careful as well. Because who says that we deserve you know, all that while the rest of the world is suffering? Not having that. So we need to change our way of thinking. 
And so finally, I want to just say this, that it's all about causing us to become more and more dependent on Christ through the cross. That's what this is about. So that God gets rid of all forms of pride. He shatters all kinds of towers of Babel. And he levers the ground so that there is only one who is exalted and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 30 and 31, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Amen. So the cross points to Jesus Christ as the only way and the means to our salvation. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the means for our incorporation into His body. We cannot enter into the body of Christ apart from Christ and what He has done for us on the cross. He has become for us wisdom from God. God in His wisdom decided only on one way and that is the way of His Son Jesus Christ on the cross. There's no other way. There's no other way by which we can be saved. This is what I realized in 1982 that I cannot, you know, I cannot excavate my way through, through the labyrinth of life to find the truth. I cannot just explore and maybe in due time find the path. I'll be lost. I'll be destroyed. And then the light shone on my path. And God showed me clearly it is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And you know, people might think I was foolish that I did not check out other religions. I just naively accepted this, this light that was shown on my path. But I don't have any regret. Now I realize I made the best decision ever because you can spend the rest of your life searching for all other religions, all of the philosophies of life. You can never, never find that. Because salvation is not something that we search out for. Salvation is something provided by the revelation of God. He shines the light. He shows us the path. He points and through His signs and He says, walk in this. This is the way of salvation. That's why Jesus is the wisdom from God. And that Jesus has become our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. That is, everything that Jesus did was for us. He became our righteousness. He became our holiness. He became our redemption. How did He do that? On the cross. He did all of that on the cross. And through His incarnated life preceding that. And therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. So Jesus Christ becomes our own boasting. I'd like to challenge you, even this week, take an inventory of your life. Inventory of your mind and your heart, all the resources that's given to you, everything that you have, your possessions, even your ministries, all the ideas, the visions, all that you have. And ask this question, is my boast only in the Lord Jesus Christ or am I boasting of my, my intellect? I'm boasting of my financial security? Am I boasting of, you know, all these people who have gathered around me, who are hoisting me up, lifting me up? 
What is my boasting? You see, Jesus is looking for people who have nothing so that they can only boast in the Lord. But sometimes I'm afraid that someone like me or maybe you, we have too many things that we boast of. We have too many things that Jesus has kind of hidden and he's just one of the boast, but not the only boast. And that's what Paul is saying. May there be nothing else that we would boast about not about our intellect, not about our health, not about our relationships, not about our ministries, nothing, not even the favor of God. That is not something that we should boast about. Our boast should only be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to check, take a good inventory of ourselves, even this week, to see whether there are other things that we are boasting about that has no place in our heart, in our lives, except that of the boast of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. And I believe if we can understand this and if we can all be truly centered on Christ and the cross, which contains the basic essence of Christ, then I think this is the way to unification. Because the unification can only happen if there's only one allegiance, not a bunch of allegiances. And so, if we can all be centered on Christ, whether it be in the church setting of different ideas and different backgrounds coming together, or whether in the family, between husband and wife, as we studied in the book of Ephesians, if we can all be aligned to Jesus Christ, I believe that is the key to unification. Unification in any context that we could possibly think of. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.